Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narrative shaping the future. I'm Rich, you can follow me on Twitter at Rich G. Gould, and I'm here with my co-host Jennifer Riggins as always, you can follow her on Twitter at JK Riggins and in this week's episode we're talking with Yin Mei who is the Director of Strategy and Curriculum Design at Online IT Education School per Scholas. Now this is a particularly special episode as it's one we recorded on Clubhouse a few months ago. So we did a live show, uh, we sort of talked to each other, yeah, live on Clubhouse. So it kind of made for quite a different experience. Uh, It was completely new to me. So hopefully it still sounds okay, but we think you're going to enjoy the conversation anyway. So yeah, uh, let's first introduce Yin. Hi, Rich. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here and also to be the guinea pig version of our (laughs) Clubhouse debut. Yeah, I uh, think this is really exciting because I actually met Jen on an article that she was writing for Clubhouse. Uh, she was writing on Club, she's writing an article for, <laughs> let me start over. Hello, everyone. Let me start over. <laughs> so here, here's the thing. It's really interesting because we're currently on a Zoom as well as here on Clubhouse. It is a highly distracting, but an exciting and invigorating experience to challenge me to focus on what I'm saying. Um, but yes, Jen and I met while she was looking for opinions and thoughts about Clubhouse for this article that she was writing for the new stack. And out of habit, as I used to work in journalism, I just wanted to support her storytelling. I always enjoyed listening to her or reading her stories and her voice. And I said, hey, I've been on Clubhouse as a casual user And I've met some really great moderators. I've been in some wonderful rooms. um, And I have some really interesting people that you could meet and talk, uh, maybe give you the lay of the land. And as I expressed more of my experience on Clubhouse, she thought, hey, what about you? I've never had that happen to me before. (laughs) I've never had that happen to me before. I also really appreciated it retrospectively later on because it was right around that week where there was a lot of activity happening, where Asian American voices were kind of popping up and recognizing kind of being long-term dismissed, including by ourselves. And I thought this is really nice to acknowledge that I do have an opinion and I've always been in the habit of sharing others. And so being able to be here present and sharing my story, I just am very grateful for this opportunity. Thanks for listening. No, my great, the gratitude is mine. Like my, it was actually a strangely assigned piece for the new stack. And I was like, wow, I haven't joined a social medium since Twitter, like 12 years ago. So it was really exciting because it gave me a new perspective and you helped me get the lay of the land between you and Abroxis who gives like these virtual audio only tours of the app. Uh, I was able to get both the technical side of how to use it because it's not that intuitive. And then from you, the benefit of the app. When I had joined for a minute or two and realized I thought it was just a bunch of tech bros and venture capitalists, which is are the things I least am interested in the tech space. Rich is laughing right now for those on audio only because I use the tech bro reference a lot. And he is a white cis man in tech, but 
I like Rich because he is an advocate and always looking for ways to get new voices on this podcast. We're always looking for new tech storytellers. But in meeting with Yin, it was a really logical person for us to then interview because she has a very interesting tech story and a lot of her story is around how to translate the value of tech, how to translate anything across cultures, across divides. So really excited to have you on the show. But I think that would be a good transition to you talking about yourself and telling us a bit about your journey. That sounds great. Thank you, Jen. All right. So I, let's see here, how did I get here? (laughs) Uh, A little short final destination summary. I ended up currently where I am. I'm uh, I'm in working as a director of strategy and curriculum design for a uh, not-for-profit uh, per scholas that has been offering uh, tuition-free, uh, cost-free trainings, especially in tech, to advance economic equity through a rigorous training for tech careers. I think their mission is really fascinating. They spotted me because I have uh, this mix of experience with uh, communicating about tech, uh, working with various business partners, as well as being an engineer and also working on curriculums and education. But yeah, I'm really happy to tell you my story of how I ended up where I am. Uh, Let's see, where do I begin? So I usually, if I'm in a rush, I would go backwards and I'll kind of be like, oh yeah, I'm in New York now. And prior to that, I did this and that. But I'm going to try something new. I'm going to start at the beginning and I'll keep it, you know, open-ended. So if you have any questions, Jen or Rich, feel free to jump in. So first of all, hi everyone, I'm Yin and my name Yin means music or sound in Mandarin. And I am an immigrant from China uh, where my family moved over right after Tiananmen Square massacre. They were the first generation to go back to university, to go back into education after the Cultural Revolution and to see the jarring violence and instability around educated individuals and the treatment of a new infrastructure was very unsettling for them. And they were very worried for my future. And so they came over to the United States. There is a democracy here. There is a constitution and a lot of foundation to have space for a voice um, and to make the music of our of our choice, right? So we so I came over here um, as a small child, riding on a plane when I was two years old, and. Um, Yeah, I think this entire adventure as an immigrant child had a big impact on how I chose to value having a voice in my day to day. And it it has been a it has been a journey of growth. I would tell you it's been a journey of growth because I think I'm still going through that fight for my voice today. In my early days, as I was growing up in Minnesota, of all places, where we landed, I remember being a child living in the Midwest, learning English and struggling to understand what life is all about. And that's interesting because why? (laughs) As a child, well, it's interesting because I'm like, okay, this is my new life. And what what are what are my options? I mean, everyone's asking me, what do you want to do when you grow up? Every child at the age of four and beyond, as soon as they know how to talk, people are asking them, what do you want to be when you when you're grown up. And I thought, what does that mean? Do I, do I choose a job? Do I become a firefighter forever? I mean, what is, what is the answer to this? So 
I got really depressed thinking I would, it's going to be something forever. <laughs> that was my only choice. Or that maybe I would have to be an engineer or just be a doctor or be a lawyer. And I decided that's not the right way to look at life if I'm going to value the time that I have here. And yeah, I made a little book of places I wanted to go and travel. And that became my motto for life for a while, thinking I'm going to learn languages. I'm going to go and meet people and eat their food. <laughs> and I'm going to create world peace just by being maybe that was a big deal too. In Minnesota, it was like every year we watch the women on the screen. It was not a healthy show. What was it called again? It's like Miss America. And I would watch that show. I remember growing up watching that show and they're always like world peace and thinking, okay, this is interesting. These are my role models. Like I have to create world peace. Okay. How do we do that? Gandhi says, be the change. So maybe that's the solution. <laughs> a lot of mixed signals here. Um, but what as, as I discovered in, as a young adult, was this fight to be this kind of conundrum, right? There's a, there's this struggle with, I'm just, I'm living life. I'm very much aware that I'm living life and there's just a lot of day-to-day -day struggle. And there's also so much to learn and I love learning everything and I have to choose my direction. How do I actually understand what I'm doing on this earth and if I'm actually creating value? And as I got to high school and college, I mean, this is where I was starting to think, I don't know, I don't want to be an engineer. I don't want to be a doctor. I want to try something different. And I was getting conflicting messages growing up because at one hand, my family came over with that mission to give me the freedom of choice. And then on the other hand, they wanted me to be stable and safe. So how do I balance this two conflicting needs of uh, it's like two conflicting requirements to <laughs> have be stable, but then go and take risks. And that's, I think, been life, right? Like you have to be stable and go and take risks. And I thought, okay, you know what? The worst that can happen is that I will die tomorrow and I will have taken no risks and I will have had no fun doing nothing that I wanted to do. So I need to make choices that I think are interesting, at least. So I thought I'm going to, I'm going to find that passion and I'm going to travel. And what I ended up doing was traveling. I, I studied, I decided to leave Minnesota and I studied at Berkeley in California, a very different environment. <laughs> I was going to say, yes. <laughs> and then graduating from a degree in psychology based on my desire to understand humans. <laughs> And what I ended up learning was we don't actually, we're not very good at understanding humans. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So education is very interesting. It's again, it's this path I'm on, but what am I going to do with, what am I going to do with uh, creating value? I think all of us are trying to figure it out right on the way uh, to where we are. And what I ended up realizing was I speak multiple languages, right? And I have to take a look at what I'm passionate about and what I'm good at and where I want to grow. I speak multiple languages. I have have an interest in building communities. I love food. I should definitely go to France. <laughs> and I should definitely go explore Europe. And I should definitely go 
and live in Asia. And uh, I got to spend a lot of time there. So yeah, in this in this process, I was able to expand the horizons. But I, I'm really just I'm just really uh, looking back, and I think this is a quick. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I feel like I've lost <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit of my flow here. A, a, a good tour through your education, I guess. It's just but, a uh, tour. Yeah, but yeah. I want to stop. <laughs> Um, just just quickly um, I'm interested to know why you decided to do psychology and sort of how it informed everything else you've done since then or maybe it hasn't informed it but like what what sort of like why did you do it and what role has it played in your life I guess oh thank you yeah Thank you, Rich. So I decided to study psychology with the hope that I would find answers about human behavior. Having grown up in with so much exposure to different cultures, with so much exposure to different perspectives that I constantly had to negotiate in order to focus on what was truly valuable. I was hoping that psychology would give me some kind of framework so that I can separate what was important in order to turn into action and what I could differentiate and take into consideration and turn into compassion. So one of the biggest lessons I learned while studying psychology was this idea of attribution. When something happens to us, we tend to feel the emotions of our reaction, but we process this reaction in various ways. I think that the idea that we can attribute the cause of our reactions to a situation rather than to a human is going to help us understand where change needs to happen. And I think even to this day, whether you're working with another individual or you're interacting with a business or you're using technology for your customers, that level of discomfort that arises indicates that this discomfort is attributed to something that is causing friction between two sets of expectations. So I'm still taking that philosophy. And that was probably the best thing I learned from psychology. There are other frameworks as well. But my biggest takeaway from there was a lot of these frameworks were were hypotheses that were studied with populations that didn't represent the current population. So how can I how can I take this conclusion and apply it to the rest of the world? I don't know if I can. I know that there's more work being done now in terms of psychology as a field. I think that we've had a lot of time to evolve, but yeah, I think that we really have moved from where we were, but I'm not I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a researcher in the field anymore, but I recognized from then that there was it was a very nascent field and even today we're trying to catch up and at the same time apply those learnings that we haven't yet completed learning. And it's definitely something in tech too. You Absolutely. All the time, the people who are using tech are not the same people that are making tech or not included in the making of tech. So it completely, that's a very early on to realize that I think also with our white privilege, well, mine and Rich to acknowledge to those listening that we are both white, that it, at least speaking on behalf of myself, uh, it took probably longer, maybe a bit of political science in university, but to start questioning who are making these things. Even as a woman, I don't think I questioned until I was minoring in women's studies, the idea that who is ma- who are making these things we are learning. And it's predominantly throughout at least the last 400 years, not predominantly white men, but predominantly white men are getting the credit for the creation. 
and to understand that and to understand the conflict and attributing the cause of a feeling is very interesting. It's a very interesting user experience design. Do you find in your current role that when you're working on curricula and specifically targeting communities that have been often left behind or ignored by tech, do you find that that's an important part of Perscolas and part of your work? I know that you learner empathy is really important when creating a curriculum in my day-to-day. And that is my job, right? Like at Perscolas, here's what I look at when I look at tech. So when I was in Beijing, I was in China for three years as an attempt to understand the heavy growth in innovation, especially from 2010 to 2013, where there was a lot of new technology being founded and launched in a very exciting hub where there was a large congregation of investors and engineers and people with ideas. And during this time, as we curated TEDx Beijing and Barcamp Beijing in an attempt to unionize or unify the resources everyone needed, I was able to get a bird's eye view of how quickly we were building. And as I continued in my journey to understand that process, becoming an engineer and also uh, studying more in depth academically for my master's, I found that there is, in the business side, a lot of pressure to build quickly. And what ends up happening is in the field, every engineering team could be faced with a lot of technical debt. And this is only on the technical side. But now when you look at the businesses that are being built and how they're being managed, you see the speed impacting the organization. And I had recently translated the technical debt into using technical debt to translate that type of debt from the organization into organizational debt. And I I Googled it. It's not a new thing. Steve Blank also uh, mentioned it and and phrased it at one point. So I think it's a very, if, if two people can come to the same conclusion independently like that, yeah, it's just common sense. Technical debt is for the technologies because we were trying to build so quickly and trying to get things done. And organizational debt is the type of debt that you accrue when you're trying to run an organization without necessarily having to go through all the steps and eventually ending up with a workforce that is so small, they haven't invested in education to catch up to the demand that ultimately the industry needs. And so when I build curriculum, The work that we do at Prescola is to build curriculum and train the workforce. It is an opportunity to invite those who have been previously excluded from tech careers into a pathway to a successful career in tech. Now, this also comes at a cost of speed and time. There's a lot of need for skills that almost seem to be neat, you know, asked for overnight, but The building of a curriculum is holding space between the need and the learner's need, where there is a demand yesterday for five different jobs that we don't have enough individuals to be in and play the role of DevOps engineer, cloud engineer, people in data engineering. We don't have enough skilled talent that is experienced. And so the creativity of curriculum design needs to take into account that a learner 
is going to be experiencing an enormous amount of information in a short amount of time. And that's very painful. I've been there. <laughs> and the, the, what, what would reduce that pain is my job negotiating for a realistic outcome, one. And so we're very successful with our employer partners. They do value realistic results. And so I'm able to be creative and understand the minimum level of skills needed in order to start to become successful for their first day at the job. But in order for us to address the learning experience with empathy to the learner, you have to remember that a story needs to be told. And a lot of times we tell stories without that empathy, the need for context, right? So if I were to explain someone what front-end software development is, and they've never really understood how the browser works, then you have to start from there. You have to start from our experience of how data is transferred between where I'm sitting to where the listener is and how an application is only a part of that experience. Cool. Thanks, Yin. That that was a really interesting answer, actually. Um, and I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that and ask you, and I, I suppose you were sort of touching on it, really, but to ask you about how you balance kind of the, the technical learning with um, these sort of like critical thinking skills and things like that in your curricula. So how, how can you kind of ensure that people are able to kind of think about these issues of like technical and organizational debt, even just kind of like organizational tension and pain points while also giving them the skills to become proficient and successful engineers or whatever else. Uh, Yeah, how do you balance that? Yeah, so when I look at a curriculum, the pressure is to accumulate all of the necessary pieces of technical knowledge in a consecutive order. But in order for this outcome to be professionally applicable, we have at Perscola something called professional development and essential skills training, where individuals work with our team specifically dedicated to strengthening the candidate in order to have that foundation of how to be a professional in the field. Um, I think something that a lot of training experiences can become better at is incorporating this journey in ways that are that in the way in incorporating this journey of professional development as part of their technical training to be able to create a portfolio at the end, right? So the challenge here is a lot of the demand that I work on. So I, I want to clarify, at Perscolas, there is a general mission to train talent and have, give them access to employer networks. And there's two main models. And one of the one I work on is a new model uh, where we work closer to the employers and understand specifically what the role entails and cater more directly to those requirements. And that is exciting because we're able to be proactive and innovative when it comes to piloting new courses. Uh, For example, we recently graduated a cohort of development operations, uh, DevOps engineers. This uh, cohort of DevOps engineers that we recently graduated came about from a pilot effort to experiment with a collaboration between our employer partner, Tech Systems, and 
their demand for DevOps in the industry. So I thought that was a really great opportunity to introduce new materials into our repertoire. And we work very closely with individuals from the roles, playing the roles in the industry as a DevOps. We work closely with DevOps engineers to define the curriculum. And yeah, there was, at the end, uh, we were able to have a new offering that we can revise and improve. What was exciting about creating a new pilot course on DevOps engineering as a result of this collaboration that we had with one of Priscilla's partners is that our instructors and subject matter experts and curriculum developers were able to, was able to leverage capstone projects so that we can really demonstrate step-by-step what we need the learner to know and therefore provide the learner with a project that they can showcase to their employers. And it was impressive because we covered a large amount of information. We covered a large expanse of technologies, um, but they all tie together and the learners went above and beyond and showed us what they could do, even on their own, to pick up new technologies, uh, new skill sets that they needed for the project to be representative of their capabilities. Just a quick one kind of related to that, Yin. You mentioned working with employers and kind of experienced professionals in the field. I just wanted to know if there are ever sort of any like editorial kind of disagreements between the people you're working with about what should be included and what shouldn't be. Like, do you, is that kind of a, a thing that comes up, kind of different sort of perspectives on what the role is and what it involves? Do, do you kind of ever get that? And I guess, you know, I, I sort of imagine your job is kind of editorializing that really. Yeah, I think that I wouldn't say disagreements. Uh, Here's what usually happens is we have a conversation with, and not just at Priscilla's, but in any curriculum that I've designed, we have, I have a conversation with the end goal in mind, right? So I also designed some materials for NYU and uh, previous to that uh, for a high school uh, summer experience in STEM. And the end goal is a number of topics that either the learners should have heard about or they should be really great at. And so what I end up doing is curating and helping focus on the priority of these skill sets for the outcome to be met. And so I say, hey, it looks like there is a lot on the page. If I were to look at this set of skills, it looks as if you were looking for someone who's a data engineer. It looks as if you need someone who's skilled in the back end and can deploy. Is this accurate? And if so, can we prioritize these skill sets and would it be okay if during the time allotted, you took uh, the, the rest of these particular technologies that you mentioned, would it be okay if we just covered it as an introduction? And a lot of times that's where the alignment becomes more clear. And then we can... This is very interesting because... So often in job roles and job ads, whether internal or external, there's an, in, an absurd amount of details and requirements that nobody could do. Just like the term full stack developer could no longer exist, should no longer exist. A full stack team should exist. 
So I think this is very interesting because probably to those hiring in tech out there, uh, you should be doing this activity too and decide really what is necessary to complement your team, not just have this one person that can't possibly have as much experience as you are requiring. And I think it's it's incredibly valuable. And I think it's a good exercise for companies to go through this with you. I think they learn a lot because I'm sure they're also looking for external hires or internal hires as well. And I think it's really important. And also, I think professional development is one of the biggest things that especially people that are typically minoritized by the tech community really prioritize in what they're looking for. They want companies that will have growth and plans for growth, not just, you know, just do your own thing, but they want a company, everyone wants a company that invests in you and that creates a lot of retention. And one thing I was thinking about, I was wondering when, especially when you talk about these higher level roles that have a lot of experience, there's a lot of times we focus on the technical know-how and the requirements, but are there cultural requirements? Because especially DevOps takes this, this team culture, it's straddling at least two roles and it's talking, there's a lot of communication requirements and they're kind of storytellers of themselves because DevOps roles are often talking to the business side and you need to be able to communicate the value of your role or explain to other people. Do you just talk about that? Or is that actually part of your process when you're storytelling and creating empathy that they get that anyway? Mm. I think the advantage of a platform like Priscilla's for working on curriculums like these is that Priscilla's, first of all, has been around for a long time. And the mission is really attractive for individuals who have been in the field and want to spend some time giving back. And we have a lot of instructors who are hard to find. They're technical, they're highly technical, but they're extremely good at making sure that knowledge is presented in a way that's palatable. And this is the ultimate success of our model. I think that Perscola's you know, both attracts, it's just like on both ends, both the learners and the instructors and the opportunities that we have. I see a lot of energy. I see a lot of energy that is trying to reach this end goal of making sure we take the best use of our time together in order to get the most ready that we can in the most strategic manner for this ambiguous role that is at the end. And I will say ambiguous because I think the opportunities that were presented as engineers, they're sometimes they're well-defined um, at certain organizations, certain companies. But I know that the hiring process is one that is undergoing refinement. So Priscilla's is at that space where it is able to have a seat at the table to help refine. And I'm grateful as someone who's technical and knowledgeable about the curriculum design process with access to subject matter experts who are passionate to shape that discussion and end up with a outcome that both serves industry as well as individuals who need a way in. Cool. Thanks, Ian. That was a really good answer. I wanted to sort of, we've talked a bit about Pascola's. I wanted to ask you a bit about 
because you, you obviously have quite a broad perspective on the tech industry and you have quite a broad set of skills as well. And you've, you've worked in a number of different fields and we'll get onto them in a minute. But I just wanted to get your, just to know from you what, how you sort of identify in terms of your role and how you sort of describe yourself when people say, you know, what do you do? Who are you? Like what? Like how do you sort of balance all these different um, skills and interests? Like how do you make it something tangible and understandable? understandable for someone who maybe doesn't have your background certainly (sighs) let's see this is actually the hardest question I avoid answering the question (laughs) who are you so much (laughs) it's not just you (laughs) it's a tech storyteller thing it's kind of the reason why we created the podcast what you talk about when you talk about tech because who knows yes (laughs) so you know I I actually thought my previous answer was extremely long-winded I'm gonna try it the short way (laughs) for the sake of this podcast. (laughs) So if I were to work backwards, right, I currently work in education because I think education is the opportunity to translate technical skills for a population that is craving for it, not just people who want to enter the industry, but the industry itself. And also not just the technical industry, but other verticals that need to be more efficient and stop wasting time (laughs) because that's what technology is. Technology is a method of producing efficient results. There are so many, there's so much other work that we could be doing if we could be more efficient in what we're doing right now, as long as we cherish technology that way. So I'm in education now. And prior to entering the field of education, I had been on a journey from communications and PR to community building. And finally, as a software engineer that was working full time at a startup for her first job after a boot camp and realizing that I needed more knowledge. And that's why I pursued my master's in cybersecurity. And this entire journey made me realize that My perspective of the importance of technology and how we understand it shapes the way that we interact with it, right? So yeah, when I was working abroad in Beijing, I was working in PR uh, by day. And then on the side, I loved organizing dinner parties that evolved into musical performances in a 600-year-old Confucian temple with images projected to the back of this wall of this temple. Very nice. <laughs> um, it was a, everything was extra. I had sponsors from different diplomatic communities that were interested in collaborating between culture and uh, between cultures, between their culture and the local culture and different uh, there was a lot of business being conducted. There was a lot of innovation being run. And that's how Barcamp and TEDx Beijing started. And I was part of that founding team where we ran one event a week at one point for 300 people on average. Um, and my biggest event was a thousand people as part of this alumni group when we opened up one of the most popular clubs uh, locally in Beijing on their first day. <laughs> so there was a lot of excitement, there was a lot of energy. And everyone was using some type of messaging platform, right? There was a lot of just 
regular day-to-day -day activities that we conduct using our phones as it evolved. And WeChat was just coming out. And as I was there running all these communities um, and working in tech PR, I would get a lot of individuals come up to me and say, hey, Yin, I want to use Facebook. Which VPN should I use? <laughs> or I'm watching this YouTube video and it's very, very slow. How do I make it faster? Or uh, I think I just got messaged by someone who intercepted my Skype conversation in the middle of my discussion with this author of this Tibetan activist uh, topic. <laughs> so I realized that there is an entire infrastructure that we interact with that we don't even acknowledge. And that's why I started my journey into studying not just software and technology uh, from a builder and engineering perspective, but also cybersecurity, the underlying questions of what impacts the tools that we use and why and how we can find out if our messaging platform is secure or not. It's a very powerful combination, psychology and cybersecurity. I think it's a very logical yet slightly disturbing because I think people could, on the opposite side, people that are very good at both could do a lot of harm. But I think it's a very nefarious but very powerful combination between the two. So since we're tech translators, since we're tech storytellers, tell us to the lay person, as we're calling this chat lay talk, what is cybersecurity? Okay. <laughs> I could give you the Google version or I'll give you a perspective. Uh, what is security, right? Security is, is the act of protecting uh, and creating safety. Safety is the quality that you achieve if you have security. So cybersecurity is the field that studies and enacts different actions to protect the asset that lies on the digital space. And what is that asset, right? There's something I have to differentiate. There's privacy and information security. In the perspective of privacy, the asset is ourselves, is what we hold to be secret that we do not want the rest of the world to look at and to have public, right? It could be anywhere from what our bodies look like. It could be our password. It could be the email that we sent to someone that we had wanted to have a private conversation with without the rest of the world examining it. That's privacy. Information security is when the asset is a piece of data that a company finds valuable and wants to secure um, so that other entities and malicious actors who want access to that asset do not get to it. There could be liabilities if they lose that piece of information, right? It could be your medical uh, information and there's major financial repercussions for breaches where you lose a piece of information that could tie that could tie back to your health account and you know a, a hacker could or someone who's a malicious a malicious actor could gain access to that information and sell it on the black market so information security is about protecting the information that a business finds important and privacy is about securing the information that you find important to be secret now, digital security habits are something that both privacy, that both the individual and the company have in common to deal with. Uh, we all check our emails and we all click on links in emails. Uh, we are all humans and we will respond to social interactions. 
these individual habits are, I think, a place where both the individual and the business entities could be invested in reinforcing and strengthening. And so I hope that, and I know that there's been work being done to inform the individuals of how to treat information with more respect, as well as their habits with a lot more scrutiny. So I hope that everyone in the perspective of cybersecurity could take our habits together more seriously. Thanks, Yin. One thing I wanted to dig a bit more deeply into was sort of sort of how like storytelling and language matters within cybersecurity. So uh, from what you said, you, you talked a lot about kind of value, really. I guess you, you want to protect things that are valuable to you, whether you're a business or whether you're an individual. And I guess as well that when you're sort of talking, especially in the context of like privacy or kind of legal ramifications, I guess, definitions, words, obviously matter, right? Um, so I wanted just to get your perspective on how kind of stories and words impact or how we should sort of think about it within the context of cybersecurity and maybe how it's come up in terms of your work as a sort of educator too. So how we talk about cybersecurity is important um, because we can talk about it all day. One of the, I think one of the challenges of working with, well, one of the challenges of changing habits is that when we are become familiar with a word, we kind of dissociate the action that we should do to what we actually are doing every day. I don't know if that's something I can, let me try to explain that again. (laughs) For example? For example, (laughs) yes. So for example, one of the most viable actions that we could be taking is to, well, actually one of the most viable actions that anyone could be taking right now is to remove apps that we don't use anymore from our phones, right? An application on your phone has a lot of access to your information. And now for a better example, we probably shouldn't be downloading applications that we think are insecure, right? But yet we still use Facebook and Twitter and Clubhouse. Clubhouse. Exactly. We're currently (laughs) in Clubhouse right now. And the irony is we take these risks because we think there is a value to the feature that we're being provided. That is at the cost of these risks because nothing else exists that we know of that other people are going to also buy into using. So we're definitely in a reactive world where gravitate to where the party is and maybe we should think twice, but yet we just still go, we, we still go through the doors of that party. So, you know, like we, I think we have a choice. We definitely always have a choice in whether or not we participate in using our voice on these platforms where we could risk our privacy or expose ourselves to security flaws. But in the world that we currently live in, it seems like that choice is worth it for many people. Or hopefully there is a choice being made. And I think that if uh, I know that there are actually individuals who make choices not to participate because their safety is at risk. And so there's definitely a world of individuals who cannot participate as well. And I could be one of them, but I just don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> I guess part of our roles as tech storytellers and translators is translating the risks. Yeah. 
but also the benefits because that's literally our job. So we have to be out there. And if you have that verified tick on Twitter, you are more likely to be sexually harassed though, you know. It's, it's happening anyway. Yeah. Um, and more likely to be trolled, things like that. Things that actually verify you and make you safer, make you more at risk. Or maybe we are taking on those risks, but as long as we know them versus maybe as tech storytellers, we're, we have yes. more, more impetus to actually tell people. Yes, I agree with this so much. So yes, Jen, if people can have all I ask, I think that we have a choice (laughs) indeed, uh, but we are not always aware of that choice. However, I would be proud to acknowledge if someone is actually exposing themselves with full agency that they know, you know, the, the cybersecurity message that they need to share is to the audience that is sitting here in on either the app or on the internet, we have to be active. I know a lot of uh, wonderful engineers who work on projects that are critical for security uh, and for privacy. And I've spoken with them before and I say, hey, what would you ever go to China? Would you ever travel? And they just say, you know, yes. I just know I will not. <laughs> well, actually... Depends. And they say they will, they just know that they might not be able to go some places, but that's the choice they've made because what the work that they're doing is valuable enough that they are willing to make that sacrifice. And something we forget about, and since a lot of our audience and our guests are in the community organizing in tech, in the developer advocate field, things like that, is that developers have a lot of say here, both within companies, because we already, to bring it full back loop, we're talking about the tech talent gap. And retention has to be part of any tech company scheme, but also as consumers, uh, I'm always talking about with my environmental friends in tech, like Paul Johnston and Ann Curry, about how there's an environmental impact in everything we do. I think they said uh, one Instagram photo posted by Cristiano Ronaldo, the footballer, will provide electricity for 11 houses in the UK for a year. So we as developers or people in the developer position, they are consumers as well. And consumer power is strong. So yes, they have to use the cloud. And the cloud is better than them managing it on site themselves. But on the other hand, they also have that power to complain to Amazon to stop building in Virginia where it's coal-based, to stop contributing to issues like that. Uh, Clearly, Google developers created a union recently, and they have done walkouts and done things. There's been still Google's messed up a lot in that area, but they've allowed that union. Google Google AI no longer supports weapons and war tools. They got Project Maven. No contract renewal. These are important things. And we have to remember that developers have an ethical responsibility, just like those of us in storytelling, translating the tech to tell these things, but also they have some power. So I think that's really cool. I love that. Yes, Jen, they have power. I think one of the notes I made to myself yesterday when I was walking and trying to think of what was the ultimate value was yourself. I think when we enter technology and stay in it and become great at it, this knowledge is power. 
And it is up to ourselves to stop underestimating ourselves. We only have so much time on earth. And one of my biggest pet peeves as a New Yorker is the waste of time. I think it is a waste of time to undervalue what you could bring to the table with your own voice and what you could be doing when spending time elevating your own ability to make change. Because as engineers, you're making decisions that impact the lives of everyone that your product touches. And that is, if that's not power, I don't know what is. <laughs> it's very powerful. And yeah, we just have to stand our ground. And if you can stand your ground, hopefully it can make a statement. And what have you got to lose? A paycheck? There'll be another one. We're in positions of power if we work in tech. We can't speak for other people, but there, and I believe in the community around tech that if you lose your job because of something, a moral purpose and trying to make the world a better place, I actually believe there are enough people in the world, at least on Twitter. I can't speak for Clubhouse or Facebook or <laughs> certainly not LinkedIn always. Yeah. Um, the one for jobs that will help you find new jobs and that are at better companies. So you have a lot of power as a consumer and a creator. Right. Beautiful. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think that's such a good point, Jennifer. I wanted to, as we sort of get towards the end of the episode or session room, ask you sort of to expand on some of the things we just talked about. So we talked about kind of careers and things like that. But I know that for someone starting out or even someone's sort of early stage career, what how do you sort of decide or how would you sort of as an educator and someone that creates sort of these resources for people, how would you guide someone on deciding what to learn, how to approach like their learning and sort of make decisions about how they might want to enter the industry and how they might want to decide to sort of learn this or that or, you know, focus on this thing and not that thing. Like, how would you instruct someone to do that or help someone do that? So I would keep it simple. I keep it simple by first reminding the individual coming into the field that they they have lived a life before technology um, before the field before enter the field and they need to value that um so I, what i what i'm coming into the perspective is it depends on the person right a lot of the learners i work with um, in my day-to-day -day are individuals who have worked other careers been in other industries and done impressive things before they decided they needed to switch and enter tech. How to decide what to learn depends on so many factors, but the one aspect is, okay, what is your number one goal for entering tech? You've done a lot with your life. Why do you wanna come into tech? So nailing down that why will shape that answer. Is it that you need to earn more money to raise your family? Is it because you want to leverage technology to expand what you know how to do? Did you work in finance before? Did you work in art? Did you work in an aspect that can really tie and translate into technology from an aspect that has an existing overlap? So if you're in art, could you go into design? If you're an educator, maybe you want to explore user experience. If you just really love working with hardware and building and being hands-on, perhaps understanding what it's like to build and work with devices directly. So there's a lot of ways that our non-technical skills are very proximate 
to a translation to a, a skill set that is already existing in technology. Oh, that's a perfect answer, I think. Um, and I, and I, I agree as well that I think self-reflection is what's what's critical in all of that. Uh, and I think we've sort of seen in sort of the last five, 10 years in the industry that self-reflection is becoming more and more important, both from mm-hmm. a sort of professional capacity in terms of, you know, what you do and how you work, what you're building, but also in terms of personal development, how you want to, what you find most fulfilling, what you want to achieve, what you want to work on, who you want to work with even. So I think, yeah, I think that's a, a really important thing that we can all learn a lot from. So the importance of self-reflection. Just to sort of wrap up over the last couple of minutes, I wanted to kind of just ask you a couple of different things, really. So first off, what you're looking forward to over the next year or so, projects, things like that, but also just where people can find you online, how people can get in touch with you if, and that sort of thing. Just ha- continue the conversation as we move forward, I guess. Uh, thank you, Rich. I, I think the first question that you had asked me is, what do I see coming up for me? One is... Over the past two years, I've been working on curriculum development at the end of a really intensive journey of entering technology from the boot camp experience to working full-time and then getting my master's part-time. And I know that working where I on the work I'm doing has been a healing process for me. Um, I'm surrounded day-to-day by fantastic individuals who are passionate about the work that we do and the people that we serve. And I want to step into that. I want to step into that healing process and remember why I entered technology in the first place, why I have this skill set. It's so that I could be creative. And so what's coming up for me are actually a number of creative projects where I want to remind myself that Texas technology is an option and a tool, not who I am. And I want to remember that technology is best utilized by individuals who have done work also on their own mental health so we can make decisions that are impactful. So I want to um, collaborate with uh, other creatives to explore projects that are hands-on, dealing with anything outside of technology, but in the art field. So I'm definitely looking forward to more art collaborations. And I would love to share those um, when they come up and emerge. I am looking forward to exploring my voice and empowering that presence. I acknowledge that I am in need of practice, as is everyone, but I want to make it playful. So I've been trying with friends to explore streaming and other platforms to engage digitally with each other and showcase the learning process that we go through. I have also been inspired to do that from my engagements with our learners who are extremely passionate about being successful after a workshop and using their skills to build projects on the Raspberry Pi that we have for many of our learners here at Perschoolers or even just on their own uh, with software that they've explored. So on top of that, continuing to write, um, I think speaking is a novelty for me and I definitely appreciate this engagement. I need to do this more often, but writing is my forte, forte and I enjoy that safe space to express over 
a longer period of time, uh, my thoughts in a more refined way. And uh, ultimately, I, I, I will share everything that I do on my Twitter feed, Misyin May, M-S-Y-I-N-M-E-I. And so feel free to stay in touch with me there. We're excited to have your voice amplified across different mm -hmm. medium. Thank you so Yeah, much. definitely. So that seems like a good place to wrap up, I think. I think this was a successful experiment. Thanks so much for being part of it, Yin May. So that's just about all we've got time for on this week's episode. All that's left is for me to thank Yin Mei for joining us and for taking part in our experiment on Clubhouse. It was slightly scary and slightly confusing at times, but I definitely learned about the platform and yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes next. As well as that, thank you as well for listening to what we talk about when we talk about tech. Uh, remember to check out some of our earlier episodes if you haven't already on our website, which is talkabouttechpodcast.com. Remember to follow us as well on Twitter. We are at underscore talk about tech. I'm at Rich G. Gull and Jennifer is at JK Riggins. Yeah, so that's pretty much everything for this week. But until next time, when we'll be back with another guest, stay safe and have a good week. Goodbye. <laughs>